0: Listen all month as ReachMD XM-157 explores The great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. Government, laws, and smoking, can they make a difference? You're listening to ReachMD XM-157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a focus on public health policy. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Ursula Bauer. Dr. Bauer is a Ph.D. epidemiologist and the director of the Bureau of Tobacco Use Prevention and Control at the New York State Department of Health. She's written extensively about population-level controls, smoking, and health results. Dr. Bauer comes to us today from her office in Albany, New York. Today we'll be talking about some of the population-level controls and smoking and what they mean to our patients. Ursula, thanks for making some time to be with us today. We appreciate having you here.
1: Sure. Thank you for having me.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about your uh, background and how you became interested in this field, specifically smoking and, and population controls?
1: Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm an epidemiologist by training, so I think of the community as my patient, if you will, and how we can organize the community in a way that really promotes uh, healthful behaviors. I took a circuitous route to the tobacco control program here in New York. I also studied uh, political science and philosophy, and one of the ways that I knew I had found my home in tobacco control is that tobacco control is really a highly politicized issue. And so it brings together all of these skills, epidemiology, public health, political science, and so on.
0: Sounds like that's a a neat group of talents to bring to the topic. Let's talk a little bit about the background of this field. We're obviously living in a society that has at various times been polarized in this area. Before you got heavily into your work at New York State, what was the lay of the land and where did your state fit into public health policy and, and tobacco?
1: Yeah, I think New York has really been kind of at the average of tobacco control, so it's somewhat representative of what we've experienced as a nation. Smoking rates have been coming down in the U.S. really since the 1964 Surgeon General's Report, which was the landmark publication that really unequivocally said cigarette smoking leads to severe adverse health consequences, causes disease and death, lung cancer, and so on. And a number of actions have been taken, mostly at the federal level, in the 60s and 70s to try to bring smoking rates down. And like many states, New York really didn't get into the act, if you will, until the late 80s and the 1990s when the National Cancer Institute funded some population-level trials, the so-called COMMIT study and the ASSIST study, American Stop Smoking Intervention Trial. And these were really groundbreaking uh, studies to determine how we can make those community changes to really push down the rates of smoking. At about the same time, some key states like uh, California, Arizona, Massachusetts, started looking at their cigarette tax laws and how they could use cigarette taxes to push up the price of cigarettes, which of course is a very effective intervention, and to take those revenues and fund comprehensive tobacco control programs. And we've really learned a lot from those states over the years. Once the State attorneys general signed an agreement with the major tobacco manufacturers in 1998. That was sort of another revolutionary moment in tobacco control that really pushed states to start thinking about how we could start addressing this problem within our own borders. And I think that's the point at which New York's program really took off.
0: Would it be fair to say, Ursula, that current activities are more likely to be seen on the state or local level versus is federal level, or is it a combination?
1: There is a clear leadership deficit at the national level in tobacco control. There are many things that can be done at the federal level that are best done at the federal level, but we have a, an administration that really has no interest in, in taking that kind of action, and that speaks to the incredible power and wealth of the tobacco companies and their ability to influence leaders and legislation.
0: And yet that same influence is not really seen in the same way at the state level.
1: Yeah, it's perhaps easier to expose at the state level. Certainly many state politicians have been embarrassed by their close ties with the tobacco industry over time. And also, the tobacco industry, as uh, as powerful as it is, has to divide its efforts across 50 states and thousands of communities, whereas it can really target its resources more effectively at the federal government level.
0: How many people smoke nowadays, or what, what kind of numbers are we talking about?
1: There are about 40, 46 million smokers in the U.S. overall. There are 2.6 million smokers here in New York. There are now as many or more former smokers as there are current smokers, but the rates just are not coming down as quickly as we would like them to.
0: And obviously you're interested in population level controls. You've published extensively on that. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you've found in your research as to the efficacy of controls at the population level.
1: There are, I would say, two guidance documents that really have nicely summarized the science of tobacco control at the population level. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have established best practices for tobacco control, and these include community action, media and counter-marketing activities, and cessation intervention, kind of systems-level healthcare cessation interventions. Sort of a companion document, the Guide to Community Preventive Services, lists the short list of effective interventions to prevent and, and reduce tobacco use. And those are things like price, keeping the price of tobacco products high, making sure that the price is increased regularly to uh, account for inflation, Things like smoke-free air laws that get smoking out of our public places and our workplaces. These, of course, protect non-smokers from secondhand smoke, but they also do put pressure on smokers to cut down on the number of cigarettes they smoke or quit smoking altogether intervention at the healthcare level in terms of establishing systems within a healthcare organization to ensure that every patient is being screened for tobacco use, every patient who uses tobacco is being given advice to quit. The healthcare provider is being prompted by the system to provide that advice, and then assistance is made available to the smoker so that they can quit successfully. Telephone-based quit lines have also been shown to be very effective, and every state now has a telephone quit line to help smokers quit.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to a focus on public health policy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Ursula Bauer, and we're talking about population level controls in smoking and what they mean to our patients. So, Ursula, we we understand that there's a a short list of population controls that seem to work. How do researchers measure that impact?
1: It's not an easy thing to do. And here in New York, we actually have a requirement in law to evaluate the impact of our program. And that has helped us focus time and resources on demonstrating that, that our program is having an impact. I want to address the question specifically, though, about how do we know that that a particular policy is effective in addressing tobacco use. And I'll use our 2003 state law that prohibited smoking in virtually every public and workplace. And what we wanted to do there was demonstrate some short-term impacts and some long-term health impacts. So, we needed to be able to show that people uh, approved of the law, people were in favor of the law, and we could do that through population based surveys. We needed to show that work sites and public places were actually in compliance with the law, that the law was being implemented as intended, and we could do that through a series of observational studies in a random sample of workplaces across the state. We also wanted to know specifically, were workers being impacted? And uh, in New York, we had many community laws that already prohibited smoking in the workplace, but those laws often did not include restaurants and bars, for example, which are workplaces where a lot of employees are exposed to a lot of secondhand smoke. So we followed a cohort of restaurant and bar workers over time, and we obtained samples of saliva from them to measure cotinine, which is a byproduct of nicotine metabolism. And it's a good marker both of smoking and of exposure to secondhand smoke. The levels, of course, are very different if you're actively smoking than if you're passively smoking. So we could demonstrate in this cohort that their levels of cotinine dramatically declined following the implementation of our law and their self-reported symptoms of runny nose and scratchy throat and itchy eyes and and coughing and so forth. The symptoms of exposure to secondhand smoke were declining but importantly we wanted to demonstrate that the population as a whole was protected from secondhand smoke and we did a population level survey of non-smokers and again obtained saliva samples from them and showed that their exposure to secondhand smoke was cut in half as a result of our law. Now, of course, the payoff of all of this is to actually see improvements in health. And in October, we published a report in the American Journal of Public Health that showed an 8% decline in admissions for acute myocardial infarction following the implementation of our law in 2003.
0: That's a pretty significant change. Have have you seen or heard from your peers that similar results accrue in in other states who have had sweeping legislation?
1: Yeah, New York was the third state to implement this kind of sweeping legislation, as you say, and now many other states and also a number of foreign countries have implemented similar laws. And our study from October added to a growing body of evidence that shows declines in, in heart attacks following the, the implementation of these laws. Population level declines. So the evidence seems to be very clear at this point.
0: Do you have any feelings on how these population level controls impact individual smokers? What happens to individual behavior?
1: There is a fair bit of research that speaks to smoke-free workplaces sort of individually. When a workplace goes smoke-free, we know that smokers cut down on the number of cigarettes they smoke and individual smokers will quit smoking. Increasingly, there's pressure on smokers in the workplace to quit smoking because of the health care costs that are associated with, with smoking employees. But just making your worksite smoke-free will result in fewer employees smoking.
0: My thanks to Dr. Ursula Bauer, who's been our guest. We've been discussing population-level controls for smoking and what they mean to our patients. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at reachmd.com which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM 157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.